Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's lovely to have you all back with us. We're looking forward to this enormously. Uh, what we got to do today, Gary, you, you have a complete grip of everything we're doing. What are we doing? Today we're doing the Boot de Wallencourt. Is it a German place, Gary? No, and it's Boot, not Butt. You sound a bit husky today, Pete. You're yes, right. yes, I went to the Historians Do Drink uh, Hague uh, Shindig yesterday and I, I feel a bit husky. I wonder why that is. I don't know why it is. So, uh, what, what's important about the Boot de Volencourt? Well, de- uh, as you know, uh, when I'm not from Luton or Liverpool or Chesterfield, I'm from, uh, I'm from Stanhope in Weardale. And for people across the county of Durham, the noble, fine county of Durham, the Boot de Volencourt has a bit of an ominous ring. Uh, some of my relatives may well have been there because of some great uncles. Well, not that great uncles are relatives unless you're some sort of weirdo. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, it was a bad place for the, for the Durhams, but also for Londoners, for South Africans. A lot of people suffered there. What is it, Gary? Do you know what it is? You yeah, can't... yeah, I've been there. It's uh, an ancient burial mound uh, from a, a prehistoric era. Ooh. It stands about 50 foot high. It's not particularly significant now, but in 1916, it stood out like a sore thumb. Literally. Literally, because of on the... the flat, uh, on the flat, against the ridge, yeah. Yeah, because of the man-made swamp that surrounded it. Uh, and it provided very useful observation for the Germans as they were looking towards Highwood and uh, Martin Puick. Oh, yeah. Uh, and what would it offer the British if we got it? Well, it would give us observation over the German lines towards Bapalm. Uh, Never say that, right? No, no I know you can't. Uh, and uh, and so it's thus tactically, not strategically, <laughs> but tactically <laughs> significant to and both people sides. People say you don't learn <laughs> <laughs> to both sides, and that's purely down to its location. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's not a, a significant. And when people go, they're often quite disappointed. In fact, I think you were quite disappointed that it wasn't that big or that imposing. But it is important, isn't it? It is. Um, now. Um, They'd been fighting, trying to get to it from well, from uh, late September, trying to bash their way towards it. And in some ways, the battles for the boot have become uh, like almost symbolic of the of the. There's this popular view that the Great War was futile, oh, the futile and futility of the Great and War, war yeah. is futile. And the, the uh, you know sometimes you just think, oh, well, the boot de Wallencourt might it might be a bit futile in some cases. So let's look at the background. Uh, the fiftieth division. Now that's the Tyne and Northumbrian division. Um, it's, uh, it's it's all a bunch of Northerners, Gary, um, and they'd uh, they'd moved into the line in September, uh, and, and they were in the ready for the Battle of Flares. Corselet. Um, we, we've talked about this. This was part of the learning curve. It, it's another step, although the Germans, of course, are also on their own learning curve, so they counter things. They've got more counter-battery fire, more concentrated artillery, heavier guns, creeping standing barrages, aircraft reconnaissance and observation, flash spotting, and then tanks. Uh, oh, in some sectors. In not, some, not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and the, it it was a step forward, um, the 15th, the Battle of Flares Corselet. 
Uh, it's a considerable success. Uh, how did the uh, 50th Division th- feel about it, do you think? Well, they, they suffered very, very heavy casualties, which was largely through the difficulty of their tactical situation. Yeah, where they were attacking, it was not going so well. I think they were around Highwood area. I'm not so sure. Uh, now, who is the 50th Division and why is it important to the Durham Light Infantry? So, uh, who are they? Well, amongst the 50th Division were three Durham Light Infantry battalions uh, who were gathered together in the 151st Brigade. Now, these were the 8th DLI... What was their nickname? I have no idea. Probably the the Big Eight. The Big Eight. <laughs> right, we'll call them that for the rest of this podcast. Who else is there? The Sixth DLI. Ah, they, now they, have got, yeah. they have got a nickname. What's their nickname, Gary? You're going to enjoy saying this. Well, because of their buttons, they were known as the Black Buttoned Bastards. Now, now, that is a I proper don't know where, nickname. <laughs> yeah, I can I can understand the button bit, but I don't know why they were referred to as bastards. Uh, they were all the, the six actually come from Weirdale. They're the Bishop Auckland <laughs> Battalion. Where my ancestors come from. Now, and in addition, you had the ninth DLI. Now what, they had a nickname. What was that? They were known as the Gateshead Gurkhas. I love. That. I want to say, were they buggery? No one ever called them that except their colonel, I expect. Well, they were, yeah, they're commanded by uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford. We'll hear a bit more from Roland Bradford Boys later Bradford, on. Yeah. Now, it was Roland Bradford's first action as commander of the 9th ELI, and um, he was actually wounded quite badly in the face. And I'm going to be a major crouch of the 9th ELI. He's a bad tempered, miserable bugger, so this is apposite casting. Thank you. And he says. But the tenacious spirit of the CO, which would not be denied the honour of leading his battalion into action, kept him at duty. What he suffered physically by this noble act, he alone knew. But I do know that two months later, it was still necessary for the MO to dress the wound. Wow, two months yeah, later. he'd been wounded in the face and he carries on. And uh, I'm just thinking about, um, I remember when Paul had a cut on his face. Well, it was better in two days, wasn't it? It was, yes. <laughs> and... Uh, hello, Paul. He, that was the he, Bradford air as well. Not Bradford, Durham. Yeah, Durham, yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, he'd been wounded in the face and, and that crutch just points it out, doesn't he? He was quite a young man, wasn't he, Bradford? Right, I think he was only 23 or 4 when he died. Um, where's he from? He's from the Durham area. Um, let's uh, talk about his characteristics. He's one of the most brilliant officers. He later on becomes a brigadier at the age, uh, still in his early 20s. Um what, what do you think were his characteristics? Uh, as a young officer, was he a bit of a soft touch? Perhaps? Well, no, he was known as a hard taskmaster, particularly towards his officers. He thought any dereliction of duty uh, would bring immediate retribution and that uh, officers' first duty was to the welfare of their men and that that would make him popular with his men. And, and that's the case. He had his own mind. He was willing to express very controversial opinions at times and not shy to give his opinion to uh, senior commanders. Now, I know one of the things he used to go on about, which was strange. What was that? Well, I think it's it's one of your pastimes, Pete. He used to like <laughs> nude sunbathing. I hate the sun and never take on, my clothes off. Is, isn't he in charge of a Durham... Uh, regiment. Where's it? Where on earth there's sun? <laughs> That's right. You've just come back from Durham. Yeah. No sun there. Uh, it, 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 it. What do you think? So he believed that uh, a lot of skin complaints, things like that, and they could be helped by by exposure to the sun. How do you think this? How do you think this would have re- reacted? What would the men then have thought of him? Well, presumably a lot of the Durham were, were hardened, grizzled old miners, and so they'd have joined yeah, in. But yes, <laughs> mostly they just thought he was gay, and he, this is probably the origins of, of rumours. It doesn't matter if he's gay or not; of course, he doesn't. But um, it, it led to that's the sort of behaviour that in the Durham Regiment. Well, I don't know what's going on here. Like, <laughs> could have been quite nasty if he got sunburned. Yeah, and those sharp bayonets. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, so where are we? Oh, 1st of October, they start again. Uh, four divisions, including 50th Division, are attacking the German uh, lines around Ocor La Bay. Uh, you'll have to put up with our pronunciations. You know they're always crap. Um, now, the 151 Brigade, they've got the 6th Battalion, DLR, on the right, a composite battalion on the left. That was made up of uh, companies of the 8th or Big 8. <laughs> and the 5th Battalion Border Regiment, which is the other battalion of the four in the 151 Brigade. Uh, 9th Battalion DLI, i.e. Bradford's Battalion, are behind the 6th Battalion, right behind them. Um, so what, how does it go? How does it go? Well, the 6th Battalion take the first line of German trenches, 
But uh, the difficulties encountered by the 47th London Division on the right meant that they were... Londoners. <laughs> meant that they were subjected to intense enfilade fire from enemy machine guns, and they did indeed suffer very heavy casualties. Now, they managed to get forward uh, and, and, took a, and got a little bit of a precarious footing in Flair's trench. This is not in front of Flair's, but this is a trench that progresses on from Flair's. Flair's have been taken... The CO of the 6th DLI is wounded and he, he comes back and uh, Bradford then appears. He crosses no man's land on the heavy artillery fire, as you'd expect, and he rallies the 6th Battalion, uh, brings with him some of the 9th and leads an attack on the next objective and supervises the building of defensive blocks on either side of the battalion. And I'm going to be... Who am I going to You're be? You're going to be Major Veitch of the 8th DLI. And Major Veitch sees Bradford just as he comes back from leading this attack. And he says, Colonel Bradford had only a short time before returned from leading the attack. And I was astonished to find him looking as though he just stepped out of his tailors. Looking at him, looking at him, it was difficult to realise that less than an hour before he'd been in the thick of the fighting. It was all in keeping with his strong belief in the moral effect of his presence and appearance on, on those he came in contact with. He certainly inspired confidence in everyone who saw him at that time, when things were decidedly uncomfortable and very uncertain. It was a little thing, but I came away feeling that everything was all right. In other words, it did us all good to see him. He's not referring to the new sunbaby when he says it was a little thing. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. So what happens? Well, they capture Lasars. It's an endless journey, this bashing forward on the Somme. Uh, what, why is it endless? Well, because new German lines appeared. And so that as the British move forward, they're faced with unchangingly serious series of obstacles. I mean, it's, oh, that was it's a, a bit like Groundhog Day. <laughs> yeah. Now, um... British tactics are improving, but they're starting to fall away. Uh, so what is it that happens in October? Always a big surprise to the British Army. Every year, this is a huge surprise. What happens in, in October? It rains. It does rain. Is this, why is this a surprise to the British Army? Well, because it, it destabilises the attacks. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, the attacks are largely based on artillery. And that therefore, there are increasing So problems. how does the rain affect artillery? Well, the well, first point is the artillery is getting worn out. Yeah, so, uh, so they can't fire endlessly. So this is nothing to do with the, the rain. No, no, but, that, but they need, they need maintenance, maintenance and repair. Yeah. And how do you get the guns back when it's muddy? It's difficult. Uh, how do you get new barrels in? How do you replace the recuperator things? It's all difficult. But right, let's go on to the rain aspect of it. How does the rain and the mud affect it in, uh, specifically? Well, the guns can't be moved in the mud. And, and let's not forget you've got to supply them with ammunition. Is that a small job? No, uh, not unless you want to fire one round a day. But, uh, you know, you've got to get that through the mud and the rain and the slippery conditions. Mud is an unstable platform for a gun. Um, and, and therefore the guns are, are less accurate as a result. I always, uh, but, and I'm afraid I may be slightly abusive here, and I know you'll give me liberty, but when, when darts players throw a dart, they need a stable platform, which is why a lot of them are grossly overweight. And it's as I gaze at you, I wonder whether you consider taking up darts, because <laughs> I think you'd have a really stable platform. I think that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, that I'm a stable platform. You are to me. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, if, if, they're, uh, if it's in muddy, as they fire, the gun jerks, the, 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 if the wheels go in, and you can't, it doesn't, the barrel doesn't recoil and return to the same position because the gun's not in the same position. Yeah, uh, uh, and, and accuracy is a major issue there. If you, if, <laughs> you, you want to be hitting the thing that you're meant to be hitting. That's it. Now, uh, the next obstacle, so they, they've got to Lasars, is the Butte de Wallencombe. We will put a map up, and I will forget, and Gary will remind me of this at some point. So when you see it's delayed, you'll know Gary's been abusive towards me. Um, some of his texts and messages are just unprintable for chums. So what uh, problems are they facing then? So, well, the Butte de Wallencombe, just in front of the village of Wallencombe. Uh, yeah, what, what problems indeed? Well, the Germans, would they have... Uh, prepare their defences? Of course they were. Germans would always be well prepared. They had honeycombed uh, tunnels and dugouts. Uh, behind in the boot itself? It, but well, behind the boot, there were more positions being dug on a sort of daily basis. So we've got the boot sticking out a bit, and, and that's riddled with defensive works. And then behind it, there's, uh, I think it's GERD 1 and GERD 2, or... Uh, um, 
I think it is. I can't remember. Uh, anyway, uh, so, yeah. Um, what other problem do you have? What do you have to do to make a successful attack? Well, there, there's great difficulty in suppressing the German artillery for some of the reasons that we've mentioned. And in early November... There'd been very heavy rain in the summer area. Does it get worse, the weather, it as you get worse. into winter? <laughs> and the trenches, they flood, and the whole thing turns into indescribable mud. Should we describe which it? Which I shall try to describe. Yes. <laughs> you went for the same joke there, Gary. You can tell this isn't, isn't entirely scripted. Uh, so 151 Brigade move into the line on the 3rd of November. Uh, now, so just a reminder, 9th, 6th and 8th, the big 8. Move into the frontline positions with the 5th Battalion, 5th Border Regiment in reserve. Uh, now, the conditions are so bad, the brigade company decides that each battalion, sorry, his brigade frontage would be held with one company each of the Durham's. Uh, because uh, you know, they, they couldn't get forward, they couldn't get into the line. And facing them is, as I said, GERD, GERD 1 and 2, or GERD Frontline and Support Trench. On their right, a brigade of Australians, uh, and uh, they also took with them as they moved forward their, their, their machine gun teams. Of course they bloody did. Uh, but they're from the 151 uh, uh, Machine Gun Company then, because, of course, this is when the time, by this time, they'd long concentrated the Vickers guns together in the machine gun companies so what was to happen what was the plan well 5th november the 151st infantry brigade was to attack in conjunction with the australians on the right the 46th division on the left was not going to attack but was to uh, was to cooperate with supporting fire now within that so there's a brigade going forward so which battalions in charge of which well the 9th dli were charged with capturing the boots and a quarry which is just off to its west. Is, is that, I don't remember seeing that. I don't remember a quarry, yeah. but then it was quite overgrown when I went. The the 6th and 8th DLI were to seize the GERD. Is that the, the black buttoned bastards and the big eight? <laughs> it's the black buttoned bastards and the big eight were to seize the GERD and GERD support trenches. And the 6th and 4th Northumberland Fusiliers, they were in support on the left and right respectively, while the 5th Border Regiment stood in reserve for 151st Brigade. And the zero hour was set for 09.10 on the 5th of November. Is that 10 minutes past nine? That's 10 minutes past nine on 5th of November. Now, I, 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 I think, as you can imagine dawn breaking that day, you know, you're going over to talk, you're looking forward and there's a, the boot... I know it's not big, but it, it has a grim menace, doesn't it? And even in some of the photographs, we'll put some of them up, it don't look friendly, does it? Um, the guns, the German guns never seem to stop. The weather's flaming awful. And there are reports of men drowning in the trenches. I'm not so sure about that. Uh, now, uh, you're going to be Lance Corporal Horace Crudes of the 1st 6th uh, DLI uh, and uh, you're going to tell us what it was like when they moved forward early on that morning to make the attack. Because they've only got, I can remember, one company in the line. So the rest, the other three or whatever it is, have to move forward. Early on the morning of Sunday, November, November the 5th, 1916, the companies in close support moved forward to man the front line trench. The distance between the close support was not great, but owing to the boggy ground, progress was dreadfully slow. I was a Lance Corporal in X Company in command of two Lewis gun sections, composed of seven men per section. Carrying gun spare parts and old-fashioned panniers, holding four magazines each. Owing to the slow progress of the troops, it was daylight when we reached the front-line trench to be greeted by the gallant W Company. They're the ones for that battalion holding the front. The trench was in such a deplorable state that we marched along the Parados in order to reach our places quicker. As we were in full view of the enemy, he met us with a terrible hail of shell, machine guns and rifle fire, and we were glad to take advantage of the slimy trench and reach our places as best we could. Now, behind them, uh, we've said, the artillery is having its own problems. Now, people go on and on about that. There's a German special. I'm not going to mention his name because I can't remember it. Uh, but... but uh, <laughs> um, the British have their own artillery experts. And funnily enough, the chap I'm going to be now, Brigadier General Hugh Tudor, he was in charge of the Royal Artillery 9th Division. He becomes our great theoretical and expert uh, uh, artillery bloke. And he, he goes through the problems. He says this, The attack is fi fixed for tomorrow in spite of the weather. It seems rather hopeless expecting infantry atta to attack with any success in this mud. 
The trench mortars have only their muzzles showing above it. Yesterday we had two barrages by, by brigades. They seem fairly good, but I should like more guns. To be effective, a barrage should be an 18-pounder to every seven yards of enemy front. And the guns should be capable of firing four rounds a minute, at least to start with, without the recuperator springs giving out. In other words, without breaking down. Now, uh, so what is, what's happening to Horace? So that's that's the, that's what's that's a general artillery general's opinion. Horace Crudes, that's you, Gary. Uh, you're forming the link. The, uh, your, your machine gun section to form the link with the neighbouring eighth, the big eight battalions to the right of the sixth, the black button bastards. Uh, the mud, three foot deep. It, it's that bad. Uh, and uh, do you think the woods warm and well? The mud is warm and welcoming. No, it's bitterly cold, isn't it, at that time of year? And, and let's not forget that uh, the Durhams knew what lay ahead of them. And Lance Corporal Horace Crudace says, Every man then looking to the loading of his rifle and the fixing of his bayonet as the zero hour was almost upon us. Serious men gazed eagerly into one another's faces and some muttered thoughts of God and their loved ones at home. Chums clasped hands and said, Cheerio, not knowing what the day had in store for them. Officers were in eager conversation with the senior NCOs regarding the readiness of the men. The enemy kept up a ceaseless bombardment of our trenches in conjunction with the merciless rain and cold. A fairly standard, what we call generic description of the trenches before they go and attack. But it, it becomes quite moving, his story later on. Zero hour, uh, ten past nine, all the available guns lay out a barrage, crashing down some 200 yards in front of their jump, the, the infantry's jumping off line. Um, now, views on the effectiveness of this barrage differ quite a lot. And I'm going to be uh, Brigadier General Hugh Tudor again. He says, The barrage in the attack had been very good. Nothing but high explosive was used. We began with a stationary bar barrage of four minutes while the infantry were getting out of their trenches. And thereafter, the creeping barrage was lifted in range, uh, in range 50 yards every minute. And firing continued at the rate of four rounds per minute. Uh, oh, that sounds perfect. Sounds perfect. But uh, the Durhams don't find it quite so good. And this is not because Tudor's incompetent. It's because of the nature of the problems. And you are once again going to be Horace Crudes. At last... The zero hour arrived and the officers' whistles sounded the advance. Immediately, the first wave mounted the trench and made off in the direction of the enemy trenches. They were met by terrific and annihilating fire and crumpled up like snow in summer. The second wave was by this time on its way. I was in that wave and placed my gun sections in single file to make less of a target. The enemy barrage was doing enormous damage and our fighting strength was fast diminishing. Now you might say... How is there an enemy barrage? And this is the point about the problems. I know counter-battery fires become more and more important to, to the British Royal Artillery, but they still couldn't suppress the fire of the German artillery. And if you don't suppress the fire of the Royal Artillery, it almost doesn't matter what your barrage is doing because the German artillery will cut your ranks to shreds because they are the main category. Machine guns are just part of it. Artillery is... And on top of that, they're in paint, mud... Paint me a picture. They're in mud above their knees, falling into shell holes filled, filled with water, laden with the usual infantry equipment necessary in an attack. They've got rifles, packs, grenades, entrenching tool, pick, Lewis gun drums, etc., etc. What would you leave behind of those? Well, eighty pounds. This would come to eighty. We've, to we've had this discussion before. Yeah. What would you well, describe, describe as unnecessary in that description? Well, now? for me as an infantryman, I'd leave the Lewis gun rounds behind. Uh, what does that mean, though? You, you've lost your Lewis gun fire after about five minutes. Uh, grenades? You're going to leave them behind? How are you going to clear up the trenches? How are you going to clear up the dugouts without grenades? Uh, a, a pick? Yeah, and, and I mean it's not even talking about, about uh, you know personal. Uh, things that you're going to need, like water, for example. Would you, need, you leave your water behind? Emergency rations. You need you need rations. Yeah. It, it's just you've it, got to carry everything that we've listed. Now, uh, there's another problem with this attack. Uh, the Germans aren't caught by surprise. Uh, what's the problem? What have we been saying about some attacks in the summer of 1916? Was this a wide front attack? No, and that's part of the issue, isn't it? It's such a narrow front attack that they're able to concentrate their fire from all around the sector. Well, the baddies, as we the call Germans, them. The Germans, <laughs> uh, onto the hapless Durhams and the Australian Brigade advancing to the south of them. 
Uh, I, I want to make clear we're not dealing with the Australian attack, but that their attack. We, you, but yes, they're going forward as well. And um, as you mentioned, most dangerous of all, the British artillery had, had by no means succeeded in eliminating the German batteries that were designated to fire in support of the uh, Warren Court sector. So the German guns just opened up as soon as the, the lads come into no man's hand. And they'd been firing on them while they were in the trenches. So well, there we are. Well, so how are the black button bastards doing? Well, I'm once more going to be Lance Corporal Horace Craddus to, to describe what's happening to the, uh, the black buttoned bastards. And he says... By this time, the whole line was held up and Lieutenant Ludgate ordered me to proceed and engage the enemy machine guns, a task almost impossible. Out of my two sections of 14 men, there were two of us left, a number one on the gun by the name of Private Allen and myself. I pushed on with one gun and a quantity of ammunition to about 30 yards from the German trench and took up a position in a shell hole. We opened fire on the opposing troops who formed an excellent target. In taking up my position, in the excitement, I placed... Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. ...myself on the right side of the gun instead of on the left, which was fortunate for me. After firing one or two magazines, the enemy found us with a machine gun and succeeded in wounding my number one in four places down his left side. Thinking him dead, I pushed him aside and carried on until want of ammunition forced me to withdraw to our troops in the rear. I took back my gun and spare parts and came into contact with an officer of another company to whom I made my report. A few minutes later, I saw my number one, who was out in front, lift an arm in an appealing manner, and I knew he whom I had thought dead was still alive. I immediately ran out in a zigzag method and brought him back to the shelter of the shell hole we were manning. Now, that's quite incredible, because when he thought he was dead, he just sort of cast him aside. Of course he did. But the minute he thought that he was alive... He rushed out to try and save him. I think uh, Kredesk gets a DCM. I'm not sure it's for this or not, uh, but I think he's a brave man, and uh, it's quite a tale. You get the idea of what's happening to the first six. Uh, they're being bloody slaughtered. Uh, uh, now, to the right of six, remember, the, the six are in the middle, the eighth DLI. There's no time for joking about nicknames now. They, they, could, they barely got out of the trenches. Uh, and they were shot to bits. They were helping each other out all the time with machine gun fire and shells dropping around them. Uh, they get where they're getting fired from. They're getting fired from uh, the, the from the left, from the boot itself, uh, from in front, and from the right. They're getting machine gun bullets. Uh, the left of the line near their sixth got to within thirty yards of the boot, but then it's just all too much, and they they retreat. They fall back uh, from the uh, original uh, to their original front line. That's, they've got no choice. What happens to the wounded, Gary? Well, the wounded are left scattered around no man's land, marooned in shell holes and slowly sinking into the liquid mud. Many who were too weak to save themselves, they, they, they simply must have drowned in the mud. A particularly awful death, Pete. I know. And, but it's, now, uh, there's nothing else for it. The Australians, they're, they're being slaughtered as well. Um, uh, uh, this is not, you know, that, it's not their story. I'm sure, I mean, other Australian historians will have their own accounts of this. Now, despite all of this, and for no obvious reason, the ninth DLI on the left advanced with considerable success. It's weird, this, isn't it? Because it's true. Uh, I don't know why it is. Perhaps, in a sense, the boot itself acted as a sort of cover that but but they did they got forward um despite all the odds the assaulting companies moved over and round the boots 
and broke into the German line beyond. And you're going to be Private Ernest Wilson of the 9th DLI. The Gateshead Gurkhas. Shouldn't have said that. We're not doing that, are we now? The officers blew their whistles and away we went, shoulder to shoulder almost, over this undulating ground. On the way, men kept falling at each side of me. We found a few Germans in dugouts. One or two surrendered and one or two got wounded. A few were killed. We got disintegrated a bit, split up into little groups and not knowing where we were going. Eventually, 2nd Lieutenant Wellingford said, Go on, chaps! A sergeant and four of us followed this officer. By this time, we were exposed to machine gun fire, marksmen, high-explosive whiz-bangs. We eventually arrived in a fairly deep shell hole, and the officer ordered us to stay there. Looking to our right, we saw another officer, perhaps 50 yards away in a shell hole, with a handful of men with him. By this time, the Germans had spotted us, and we daren't move. Our sergeant wanted to contact them, tried to crawl his way, but I'm afraid he was killed. So they've got isolated detachments in the German front line and around the German front line, but they can't link up. And when they try, they're killed. Now, there are reports of a, a brief glimpse of a solitary figure of a member of the battalion on top of the boots. And he seems to pause for a moment, look back, and some eyewitnesses say that he waved and then he disappeared down the other side. I've always thought this, because if you've seen the boot, you can almost imagine it in your, a shell short, uh, torn ground and then just waving, waving back. Come on, lads. Oh, anyway. Now, by 10 o'clock, remember they, they went over at 10 past nine, uh, between 10 and, say, half past, they've gained most of the, the, their objectives, and they hadn't yet suffered terrible casualties. Um, now, uh, what problems faced them there? What, what problems might be really serious? Well, unfortunately, they had really serious problems mopping up because there was over 100 Germans and several machine guns seem to have remained concealed in the warren of dugouts and tunnels that we mentioned earlier so around been, the boot. They've not been mopped up. They, ca- they can't be. No, and, and uh, a murderous game is played with bomb and bayonet. Now, you're going to be uh, Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford, 9th DLI, a, a true hero in many ways, an inspirational leader. But he gives his, his reports as to what's happening. You're going to give the first one. The Germans in the dugout on the northeast edge of the boot had brought a machine gun into position and were worrying us from behind. Many gallant attempts were made throughout the day to capture this dugout, but without success. All our parties who tried to rush it were destroyed by the German machine gun fire from the direction of Hook Sap and by the fire of the large number of snipers in Wallencourt. That's the village of Wallencourt. However, a party did succeed in throwing some Mills grenades into the dugout, and this made the Bosch more cautious. That made me more cautious. <laughs> now, uh, German, in, uh, German counterattacks, would they be expecting them? Yeah, they're inevitable, aren't they? And, and uh, uh, how are they going to prepare for them? Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford goes on to say, Now, what have we got to do to resist the counterattack? For we can and must resist it. And no other thought but of resisting it is permissible. First of all, we must get the best possible protection against enemy artillery fire. And we gain that by consolidating properly, by digging a deep, narrow trench with good traverses. Or, if we're not making traverses, with plenty of curve in the trench. By these means, we get protection from the oblique and frontal fire of the enemy artillery and localise any shells that burst in the trench. Every man must realise that unless he digs with might and main, directly he reaches his objective, he will be unable to obtain cover from shellfire and will eventually suffer for not working his hardest. The very lives of these men depend upon the intensity with which they dig. And remember, during our training, to drive this into the men's souls, make them realise that their power to resist counterattack and their power to maintain themselves in safety under enemy shell fire rests entirely with themselves. If they are prepared to expend their energy in a sensible and able manner, they can be comparatively safe. Now, that's the theory. That's what Bradford wanted to do. That's what Bradford knew they must do. Um, so what happens in reality? Because this isn't a training ground exercise, is it? So you're going to be Bradford again. The ground had been so pulverised by our bombardments and was so muddy that it was not possible to do much in the way of consolidation. But the men were ready with their rifles. But he just said it was essential. 
but they couldn't do it. Not from laziness, because uh, let's be honest, the British soldier often doesn't like digging, but this is uh, just impossible. Now, uh, so they couldn't consolidate properly, so there's real problems, uh, and they're difficult to put right uh, after that first uh, advance. So the first German counterattack would come in from local units, wouldn't it? The, 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 the people who are in war, the village of Wallingcourt, people who were locally in reserve. So what time would that come in about? That's about noon, and as you mentioned, it, it's quite half-hearted, and, and it actually it's quite easily stopped. But uh, during the yeah. afternoon, the enemy launched several harassing bombing attacks. So that's just to embugger and stop, yeah. stop the British properly organising themselves. And these are repulsed as well. Oh, good. So everything's fine. Is it all right then? Well, yeah, except when the reinforcements begin to arrive, the first so, proper counterattack. This be- is the real reserves yeah, going. That begins a, sometime after three, three o'clock in the afternoon. Three, three fifteen, yeah. Yeah. yeah Round right about then. Gradually, the, the ninth of the LR are then forced back. Right. So, uh, uh, the, the, so this, the story from now is a, of a contracting, uh, thing they're on their own nobody else has got forward six and eight the australians no one's got forward it's just them um, um but fifteen thirty. Uh, if you look on your map they 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 hold a line stretching from north of the quarry to the boot alley south of the butt and then by shell hole positions to where the sixth battalion had a block uh, at 1700 colonel bradford reports the situation to brigade as such and you're going to be bradford we have been driven out of the grid front line and I believe my posts there were captured and have tried to get back. Uh, the enemy is in considerable force and is still counter-attacking. It is taking me all my time to hold Boot Alley. Please ask artillery... I like this politeness. Please ask artillery to shell area north of Bopalm Road as Germans are in considerable force there. This is cl- very polite. Uh, he, so they've been driven out of the Gerd front trench, and that's where they were. Oh, sorry, yeah. Oh, no, no. It's a, it, your eyes are poorly. Um, but uh, so the Gerd front trench, and remember we said there's a Gerd 1 and 2, that, so they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they've lost that, and they've been pushed back towards the boot itself and the trenches around the boot, hook, sap, and everything else. Um now, uh, so that these are these are situation reports, yeah, but, and, and it's incredibly cool, isn't it? It sounds so matter of fact. Yet between these uh, very cool situation reports, we're interspersed periods of desperate hand-to-hand fighting. The only success had been achieved by the Gateshead Gurkhas. You're using that name there, which we said we weren't. We gonna said use. we weren't going to use but, them. But the thing, the thing about it is, do you know what? They almost deserve it for their achievements so far. They, they, they've earned the right to their silly nickname. However. They've not been supported. They're, they're Why actually... not? Why not? Where, where are the Northumberlands? Where, where are the other battalion, uh, the uh, the Yorkshires? Where are they? Well, they're, they're effectively cut off by the German artillery uh, and well-directed German machine guns. So there's a wall so, of shells. So the ninth are in effect isolated. Uh, and once more, you're going to be Private Ernest Wilson of the ninth DLI. He says, uh, we got too far forward and we were under our own artillery fire. In fact, shells were dropping behind us. A shell dropped very close behind and our shell hole caved in on us and we were half buried. After a while, after extracted ourselves, there were Germans standing over us with their bayonets. Surrender! Surrender! So we knew then we were captured. <laughs> but that's what you get. They're, they're people in the GERD and things, and they've, they've gone. They've not gone too far. But what's happened is they're isolated. And as the German counterattacks come in, these isolated groups are picked off. Uh, why couldn't the fourth or sixth Northumberland Fusiliers? Well, it, it's just a barrage. Um, they can't get through the barrage. It's a wall of shells. We've talked about this on the Somme. This, hap- this is, well, this is a Somme, but this is what happens. The German gunners can just cut off an area of line. Uh, so uh, they're, they're, all there is is the 9th DLI and a couple of machine guns from the 151 Machine Gun Company. What does Roland Bradford say at, uh, about this? Latest sti- Give us the latest situation report, boys. That was his nickname. About 6pm, the Germans made a determined counter-attack, preceded by a terrific bombardment, and were able to get to close quarters. A tough struggle ensued, but our men, who had now been reinforced by the reserve company, and who showed the traditional superiority of the British in hand-to-hand fighting, succeeded in driving out the enemy. 
The ninth DLI was getting weak, but it was hoped that the Bosch had now made his last counterattack for that day. Now, what is it? I mean, the German army is a magnificent fighting force, and and and, and they're, they're magnificent soldiers. Do the Germans tend to do what the British want? Generally not, and unfortunately, du- during the day, the Germans received yet more strong reinforcements. You're going to be you're going to be Roland Bradford again. At about 11 p.m., battalions of the Prussians delivered a fresh counterattack. They came in great force from our front and also worked round from both flanks. Our men were overwhelmed. Many died fighting. Others were compelled to surrender. It was only a handful of men who found their way back to Maxwell Trench, and they were completely exhausted by their great efforts and the strain of the fighting. By 1 a.m. on the 6th, we were in the same position as on the morning of the 5th prior to the assault. So right back, Maxwell uh, trenches the front line, British front line, or, or you know. So uh, why are the, the... Now, this is where I think it's interesting because situation reports, polite. Yep. Calm. Now, now um, the, the next thing is uh, we look at what he has to say when he's analysing. Because in the end, his, his battalion's failed. Uh, so what does he say? Why are the Durhams, why are the 9th... Durham Light Infantry failed. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ronan Bradford says, There were many reasons why the 9th DLI was unable to hold its ground. The failure of the troops on the right to reach their objectives and the fact that the division on our left was not attacking caused both flanks of the battalion to be in the air. The positions to be held were very much exposed and the Germans could see all our trenches and control their fire accordingly. It was a local attack and the enemy was able to concentrate his guns onto a small portion of our line. The ground was a sea of mud, and it was almost impossible to consolidate our posts. The terribly intense German barrages and the difficult nature of the ground prevented reinforcements from being sent up to help the 9th DLI. 400 yards north of the boot, the enemy had a steep bank behind which they were able to assemble without being molested. In the hope of being able to exploit success, we had arranged for our barrage to be placed just beyond this bank. The terrain was very favourable to a German counter-attack. Now, um, they've failed. On the evening of 6th November, the 5th Durham's move up as part of 150 Brigade. Because that's another... This is a Northumberland and Durham Brigade. So there's another Durham Battalion in 150 Brigade as opposed to 151 Brigade. Now, um... Now, they're moving up to replace the relieved, and uh, <laughs> never was there a better choice of word, the 151st Brigade. And you're going to be Lieutenant Green, H. Green, of the 1st, 5th DLI. It was a very rotten job. Approaches to the lines were completely waterlogged, and one was continually meeting stretcher parties and walking wounded, which were going, which made going up a, a very slow and tedious business. C and D companies, after taking over the front line, experienced a heavy barrage which, after passing the pimple. This barrage set on fire in an ammunition dump near company headquarters, and we thought that another Bosch attack was coming. However, some of us went ahead and found things all right, and after what seemed an awful long time, we were able to send relief complete to battalion headquarters. Now, they're in the front line, they've taken over the front line, What's it like? Well, the signs of battle are, are everywhere around them. And uh, I'm going to be a Lieutenant C.D. Marley of the 1st 5th DLI. And he says, Snag Trench was full of mud and water with bodies sticking out all along. It is, in fact, no exaggeration when I say that in our part, we had to tread from body to body to get past. Dead from all regiments were there, including our division. South Africans and jocks of the 9th Division and hands, arms and legs were sticking out of Parados and Parapet where the dead had been hastily buried. Now, we, we're, we're focusing on the Durham sacrifice that, uh, at uh, the Boot de Wallica, but both of us want to make it clear this is a culmination of a series of attacks. Uh, the 9th Division, which we dealt with before, that's where the uh, the Scottish uh, corpses came from, and, and of course the South Africans. The London Division, I think it was the 47th Division, had attacked here. So there's a lot of other people suffered at the Boot de Wallico. It just happens that our talk is on the Durhams. Uh, now, the, fl- the front, what do you think that the, was, uh, was the state of the front? Well, it's a, a complete 
state of confusion and, and you've got stragglers uh, that are coming in throughout the day and you're going to be Lieutenant H. Green again of the 1st 5th DLI. But all that night, whilst trying to reorganise and make a fairly continuous front line, one came across isolated posts of the outgoing battalions who knew nothing of the relief. No Man's Land was an equally weird sight. Patrols came across wounded men and men just sitting there, exhausted and unable to, unable to move. It seemed nothing could make the situation worse. But it could. And here we go. What did we say? You've got to laugh or cry. And even amidst this misery, they, they can see a funny side. The last straw was when one of the company commanders gallantly arrived at the post with a rum jar. Imagine everyone's horror when he dished it out and the first men said it was whale oil. <laughs> I bet they enjoyed that. I bet they didn't complain. Not at all. Now, after the battle, Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford looked back to see if he could make sense of it all. And I'm once more going to be... Now, I want people to listen to this because you're going to be Colonel Bradford but just listen to how he he goes through the situation and then he finishes up with one of the most offensive aggressive lines and I want you to note for it just watch for it and you'll see you'll think wow Lieutenant Colonel Roland Bradford on looking back at the attack of the 5th of November it seems that the results which would have been gained in the event of success were of doubtful value and would hardly have been worth the loss which we would suffer it would have been awkward for us to hold the objectives, which would have been badly sighted for our defence. The possession of the boot by the Germans was not an asset to them. From our existing trenches, we were able to prevent them from using it as an observation point. The boot would have been of little use to us for purposes of observation. But the boot de Wallencourt had become an obsession. Everybody wanted it. It loomed large in the minds of the soldiers in the forward area and they attributed many of their misfortunes to it. The newspaper correspondents talked about that miniature Gibraltar, so it had to be taken. It seems that the attack was one of those tempting and unfortunately at one period frequent local operations which are so costly and which are rarely worthwhile. But perhaps that is only the narrow view of the regimental officer. Now, that is insolent. <laughs> that, remember, he's sending his report up sometimes. Oh, well. Now, um, um, just 94 officers and men uh, in all, including headquarters, were withdrawn from the line into a camp near Mamet's Wood. Of the, this is the 9th DLI. Uh, the others, a lot more turned up later, but you're getting an idea. The, the, the battalion had been... Uh, uh, wrecked. What have they achieved? Now, I'm always interested. What have they achieved? They gallantly captured uh, the Boot de Wallacourt. They did, and they held that for 18 hours, a, a position which had often been previously attacked, but had never been held. And uh, But they hadn't held it. So had they achieved anything? Well, arguably not. There's a terrible loss of life. I mean, casualties are difficult, but the 50th Vision history estimates them to have been, for the 6th DLI... 11 officers killed, wounded or missing, 34 other ranks dead, 114 wounded and 111 missing. Well, and they're dead, aren't they? They're, they're, in, they're in the mud. They're probably still in the mud today. For the 8th DLI, 9 officers killed, wounded or missing, 38 other ranks dead, 100 wounded and 83 missing. Oh, I turned into an Australian. 83 missing. And finally, the 9th DLI... 17 officers killed, wounded or missing, 30 other ranks dead, 250 wounded and 111 missing. And not forgetting the 151st Machine Gun Company, they had three dead, 20 wounded and eight missing. So total casualties, 38 officers and 929 other ranks. Which is uh, bad. Yes. Now... Um now, uh, 25th of November, an announcement comes through that the, the, the remnants of the, the 9th Battalion are back. And uh, Roland Bradford gets uh, the Victoria Cross. Uh, is that for the Boot de Wallacourt? No. 
It's for his leadership of the 6th and 9th DLI in uh, in the affair of... You remember we talked about it at the start, on the 1st and 2nd of October. October yeah. So he didn't get, you know... Uh, how did his men react? Uh, what was this young officer like? He was young. Well, his men, they, they hoisted him up onto their shoulders and they, and they cheered him around the area, uh, refusing to put him down until he agreed to their loud cries of speech. Speech! speech. I'd have been shouting, beer, beer. But uh, uh, Colonel Bradford tells them, tells them that his award was not merely for himself, but for the good work of the whole battalion. Shortly afterwards, uh, the Battle of the Somme comes to an end. It's, uh, it's After now, the Battle of the Ankh, yeah, yeah, which we're now, doing in subsequent podcasts. It's now too late for the gallant Durhams. I'm going to get that out if it kills me. It killed them. Well, uh, yeah. Now, um, later on in the war, when it's been cleared... Uh, of the Germans, uh, the, the DLI erect a sort of tall, twenty foot tall uh, wooden memorial cross uh, on the boot wa- the walling core, and and we saw that on a recent trip to Durham, didn't we? It's in well, one of them. I think there's three in all. Uh, I'm not quite sure which one we've seen because I get confused as to which is which. But we saw it in the cathedral. Do you remember? It's prominently displayed in the Durham's tra- chapel. Can you it is, yeah. it in your mind's eye? I can, yeah. We'll put a picture of it because I, I know I took a picture of it, and uh, it's got a. a in my view, peculiarly stupid motto, or one of them has anyway. What, what's that say? Dulce e decorum e pro patria more. Uh, how sweet and fitting it is to die for one's country. Uh, I'm not sure whether that was the case with the attack on the, the Boot de Wallacourt. Not every attack is worthwhile. Not every attack is, is carried out in a sensible manner. Some attacks are futile. Some of warfare is futile, isn't it? Um and uh, it's it's a bad time. It's a bad time for the Durhams, and it's a bad time for the fighting on the Somme. It all seems hopeless. But strangely enough, what happens just a week later? The Battle of the Ankh, which is one of the great successes of the Somme, and we'll be looking at that next time. Cheers, Pete. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash pgmh or consider subscribing to the podcast for only two pounds per month and get ad free listening and bonus content you can find links for both on our facebook and twitter accounts sounds great doesn't it